0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, is the LRT project on track? The Canadian Femicide Observatory of Justice and Accountability issued their first annual report. And what do we actually know about Huawei? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. I want to talk about LRT, and not specifically about the project. Uh, That's a discussion that City Council is going to have to have. Sooner than later, when they start getting some numbers about uh, operational costs, et cetera, et cetera, so we're going to shove that aside for a second. But the other concern, and we talked about this, I think about a week and a half or so ago, uh, was some concern by Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger and some members of City Council about the uh, not the commitment necessarily, but about the, the the work ethic and the things that have to happen between the province and the city to make this project happen. Uh, Doug Ford had uh, apparently told uh, Mayor Eisenberger that he was going to come to Hamilton and meet with him. That hasn't happened yet and the mayor is wondering why. We're told that there were some inquiries made about that. The uh, transportation minister suggested that he may want to have a look at this file. Uh, he hasn't done that yet. So, so there are some people at City Hall right now that they ha- suggesting that maybe the province are dragging their heels on this. I want to get some clarity on that and to do that first uh, I want to bring Donna Skelly into the conversation. Don, of course is the MPP for Uh, Flamborough-Glanbrook, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, and of course, as a former city councillor, is well versed on the LRT file. Donna, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today.
1: Good morning.
0: Listen, I know I'm pulling you out of a session, uh, a thing that you're doing today with uh, the public, and I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. Uh, You you saw the article in the spec today that uh, Matthew Van Dongen wrote, and and Mm -hmm. expressing some concerns, some freedom of information stuff that they got on there. You, are you are you getting the the vibe too, Donna? That there's some concern at City Hall right now about whether or not this project's going to move forward and the province's commitment to it.
1: No, it's interesting you should say that because uh, that's new to me. I have um, not spoken actually with the mayor since he was reelected or since uh, I was elected about the LRT. and And uh, Drina, his assistant, did reach out at one point, but never followed up for a further meeting. I, I would appreciate if he's if he has concerns, perhaps he should begin with with me and I, I I'm in touch with the minister and the ministry on a on a regular basis discussing LRT and other transit related issues for the area and I, I speak to the uh, the premier uh, on a on a regular basis I'll be seeing him with the minister actually this coming week uh, at our retreat in Kitchener so you know it would be wonderful if there are concerns pick up the phone and call or or, or book a meeting and we can chat about it but uh no, um, that's actually news to me.
0: Let me ask you about protocol here. Uh, there was some concern. Doug Ford has been to Hamilton, of course uh, it yes. wasn't an official visit with uh, with the city staff or the city, but it was with business leaders and and yes. and, and you and I talked about it that uh, I think it was the day after, and you suggested that well, that was obviously set up through your office and through uh, other yes. members here in the community. Uh, are they going through your office to try to facilitate this meeting between the mayor and, and the premier?
1: Well, I can assure you that there will be a meeting, but it, I, I think that the protocol is to meet with the minister first. And the minister and I and his staff have been looking at dates to bring the minister to Hamilton to, to meet with um, uh, members of council, to meet with the mayor. And I think that that is probably the first step that we should have before uh, we go any further in terms of meetings.
0: Okay. How do you make that happen?
1: Well, I'm in, t- I'm in talks with him now. It will be happening. It's just a matter of coordinating staff. I just returned, actually. From we're still not back at uh, at Queens Park. But no, no, I, you're I gets, uh, The
0: recess isn't over till what? To the middle of next month, I think.
1: Seventeenth, yeah. And I've been on the road for ten days um, on pre-budget deliberations, and and which ended yesterday. Uh, back in my constituency office this week, and then we're back again on the road next week. So. Um, it will probably be happening sooner than later, I'd say, within the next few weeks.
0: Yeah, this is a matter of, of, as you say, trying to coordinate things. I mean, the mayor's out of town this week, too. He's up in Ottawa, of course, for the large urban mayor's conference Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and has been for the last little while. He'll be back. uh, Actually, he's going to be on the show Friday. So uh, it's it's a matter of getting everybody together on this, but there's some consternation right now because there are some people, uh, based on some of the information that I've heard anecdotally from staff and from some of the elected officials, Donna, that uh, they thought that they might even be able to get shovels in the ground later this year. Now it looks like this isn't going to happen. Uh, is the f- project, in your opinion, is it falling behind schedule?
1: Uh, it, it could be, following, be falling behind the schedule that the city has put forward, but uh, part of the problem is I'm not sure that they have clear understanding of the costs. And as you know, the province has committed and, and the premier has committed to the billion dollars minus what has been spent but having just returned from ten days of uh, pre-budget consultations, I can assure you that it is a billion and only a billion. Um, If it does happen to exceed the billion dollars, the city will be responsible for finding out how to, to cover any additional costs. We are certainly not doing anything to drag this along, um, but
0: no, maybe IRS not officially. Purchase, you haven't, but the fact that you put a freeze on real estate purchases, uh, some people are saying, well, that is dragging it along.
1: No, I think that that's probably more prudent in terms of until we find out the the true costs. I'm going to go back, and as you know, um, how, my feelings about LRT, but my biggest concern when I was a city councilor was the cost of the project, mm-hmm. because when Councilor Whitehead asked for the extension to Eastgate, there was really a, a very vague. Um, understanding of how that additional uh... extra kilometers would be covered and i'm not so sure that that has actually been identified but but the but the minister will be here we are not doing anything to to slow this down and i will tell you that there are other discussions i'm having with the minister that go beyond the lrt uh... we have to look at other opportunities for transit and also for transportation the movement of goods in the Hamilton area, and I meet with him on a regular basis to discuss other opportunities uh, as well for the city.
0: Now, you just mentioned a minute ago that if there's a cost overrun here, and and, name me a project that doesn't have one of these, uh, any government at any level. They always seem to have cost overruns. But you just maintained or, or told us that if it goes over the million dollars uh, that's already the been billion? talked about, a billion, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. uh, that the city's going to be responsible. Now, that's news to us because apparently there's no official word on that. And and uh, are you telling us right now that that is the government's policy?
1: Well, I, I don't think it's a stretch to think that when we're in a government facing a $15 billion deficit that we would not we would be able to uh... shore up funds for anything other than what we have committed to the premier committed to a billion dollars and we are standing behind that commitment but you know we we have huge pressures facing the province right now and and uh... i think it would not be prudent to um, to try and and find uh... you know money that exceeds the billion the billion is the promise it's going to be kept and uh what happens beyond that I, I I think that the city would have to um, look at ways of, of funding anything that uh, goes beyond the billion dollars
0: but at city hall, they don't know that yet so are you stating are you stating, well, I, are you I, stating I, government I, policy or just speculating
1: i'm well am I speculating I'm stating what the facts are that have well, get been. That, John. We, we commit we commit to a billion dollars I don't know if it's going to exceed uh, a billion, but it would be very difficult for the province to say we're going to find more money when we have hospitals that are that are asking for additional beds and long-term beds and and other transit projects across Ontario and you know other priorities in other sectors. Uh, I think it's reasonable to say that we're committed to our billion dollars.
0: Donna, I know I pulled you out of a meeting. I know you get back in there, and I really do appreciate the time. Uh, Do me a favor, though. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you do set this thing up, and and Transportation Minister Yurik does come into town, we'd love to have you and he on the program here to maybe talk about this file. I
1: will. I, I uh, haven't so set agendas yet, so I'd in, like to... I try accept. to have them in the morning. How's that? That so sounds like a deal. So you can have them early. Okay. Sounds like right,
0: fa- Thanks so much, Donna Skelly. Of course, okay. MPP for uh, Flamborough Glenbrook and Parliamentary Assistant uh, for Economic Development. Uh, well, there you go. I mean, her suggestion, because uh, uh, we have not heard official government policy on this, that if there is a cost overrun over this billion dollars that they've talked about, that the city would be on the hook. That's uh, probably news and not good news for uh, Mayor Eisenberger and others. Let's get John Best in on the conversation. Publisher of the Bay Observer, who's been on this file for seems like a hundred years, John. <laughs> yeah, a minimum, yes. Uh, easily, yeah. How are you doing today? Good, thanks, Bill. I, I think we have breaking news here that uh, the government's going to be, or the provincial uh, government is suggesting that the the municipal government's going to be on the hook for any cost overruns. Now, that's a question that heretofore they said they did not have an answer to. Now, I understand Don is not the minister, uh, and I understand that logic would suggest that that's the way things are going to go, but they haven't received official word on that yet.
2: Well, I'm sure she's well informed on that issue, and I, I don't know why anybody would be surprised. Frankly, uh, it's been a billion dollars uh, going back to Kathleen Wynne. Even she said uh, up to a billion more than once. So, I, it, it's not a surprise that maybe you know the the fact that it's now been reiterated is is a is a surprise. But I I don't know anybody that thought. Uh, this thing was going to be paid for by the province up to any uh, level, and of course, we know with so many of these projects that they do run into cost overrun well that 's so what
0: i mean let 's be pragmatic yeah. about this i mean yeah now and and the two things about that and let's let's talk about that cost for a second John uh, I know that the mayor and, and others on council that are supportive of the LRT are hoping that uh, that when the bids come in uh, to see who actually wants to, to try to build this thing. Uh, that they can come in under a billion dollars. Uh, now, that's wishful thinking in in my mind. I don't know that that's necessarily going to happen, given the the delays that we've had, the real estate purchases that have yet to be made, the remediation that has to happen. Coming in under cost, come on, that's a stretch.
2: Yeah, it it is, and you got to remember that the the um, uh, in that uh, big meeting where where the project where council voted to allow the project to move yet another step forward. Um, the the business. Remember, up at that point, they were looking at a at a project that was going to run from Mac to the Queenston traffic circle. Yeah, uh, and the the additional uh, trackage that was uh, that was tacked on, uh, going out to Eastgate, uh, was literally done on the back of an envelope while the meeting was underway. So there was no costing. There was no nothing. It was just uh, craziness. And uh, so I, I don't think we know what the project's going to cost. I, I'd be stunned if it came in uh, under a billion or even at a billion. And, and I think the, the, the two big unknowns that I was looking at the, the papers again the other day, and I, you know, we're, we're going to build a, a standalone bridge across the Shadok Ravine, and we're going to build a tunnel uh, under the THMB tracks at uh, King Engage. Gage, I just, you know, those two aspects of it just cry out for cost overruns, I think. But we'll see. I mean, at some point, uh, you, the big problem right now, is, as was confirmed, uh, we mentioned it uh, a couple of weeks ago and it was confirmed in, in the Spectator story today, is that they've had to extend the bid date by, by three months because nobody's bidding on the project, and, or at least nobody submitted a bid. As Yeah, yet. That's, that's
0: kind of important.
2: Yeah, so it's great to say, what's it going to cost? Well, you're never going to know if nobody submits a bid.
0: Here's so. here's the other element to this, uh, and, and I'm going to go back to some of the comments made by some of the councillors who I, I think it's fair to characterize begrudgingly supported moving forward on this project, notwithstanding some serious reservations that many of them seem to have. But it was on the, the proviso, John, as you recall, that said as long as Hamilton taxpayers don't have to pay one dime towards this. And back then, that sort of sounded feasible, but given the scenario that we're in right now, where the government seems to be, the provincial government seems to be leaning towards saying any cost overruns are going to be the city's responsibility. Uh, Where's that support going to go?
2: Well, uh, evaporate uh, that that business of voting for it on the proviso that it not exceed, uh, that we not spend a penny, that was always taken as a yes vote. Uh, Now it's become a no vote, I think.
0: Well, uh, yeah, because I mean, if it's even a buck over, I mean, te- technically, those counselors uh, will probably withdraw their support and probably feel comfortable doing it at this stage.
2: We could we could probably scrape up a buck, but if it's uh, two, three hundred million, even a hundred million, I, you know, we just went through a capital budget exercise here, and we we, we really got to be straight with people out there. The the reason we're able to keep these tax increases down to you know one and two percent. We're, we're simply uh cheating the um, uh the capital budget side so we're constantly squeezing the capital budget side we're under investing in in needed repairs and maintenance in order to keep the overall tax at at some kind of a tolerable level so you know uh, i i just think there's a, a lot militating against it I also noted in in the article that that uh, the art the uh, Staff report that was uh, extended to the previous minister uh, warned of, uh, you know, we won't get the economic uplift and, you know, various things if we don't go ahead with it. I would simply say that that's coming from Metrolinx, and links has already been criticized by the uh, Auditor General for uh, downplaying or even ignoring uh, the possibility of bus rapid transit, not only in Hamilton, but in two other projects. So I, I think the sense is, I, I think it's pretty clear that Metrolinx has become an advocate for LRT, uh, even in some cases where it may not be the best solution.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, very quickly, I know we're almost out of time here. Uh, in in the freedom of Information uh, request that the spec finally got some details on although, as I mentioned, a lot of it's already redacted. Uh, a July MTO memo, that's Ministry of Transportation memo, estimated the total capital cost had more than $1 billion dollars, uh, suggesting that the move to Queenston, uh, from Queenston Traffic Circle all the way to Eastgate, this is the quote here, led to an increase in the base capital costs above the previously committed $1 billion. If that's the case, and that's their estimate, and this is MetroLink, this is not the city, uh, there are storm clouds up ahead, John.
2: There are indeed, and, and I think uh, for council, I think the best thing for them to do is not vote on anything until they finally see some real numbers.
0: Exactly. John Best of the Bay Observer, as always, John, thanks for this. You're welcome. Uh, it's, yeah, it's about as clear as mud now, isn't it, as to what's going to happen. Uh, by the way, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberg, as we mentioned, is in Ottawa for the larger and mayor's caucus. He will be back uh, later on this week, and on Friday he'll be in town, uh, and he'll be on our program, of course, for a mayor's town hall. So you can bet that we'll follow up with the mayor on this and many other LRT and other budget-related stuff. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about... Uh, a. F- a phrase that you just heard on the news uh, with uh, Laura Hampshire, and it's uh, a phrase that maybe you don't hear, maybe you've never heard before, femicide. Yeah, it's it's relatively new to an awful lot of people, but it's a very important study that, uh, that we were talking about here on CHML News. This is the first annual report by an organization called the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. Hashtag is call it femicide. It was uh, released yesterday, and it answers a call from the United Nations sir, for countries to better track gender-related killings of women. And some of these statistics are, quite frankly, frightening. The the, the one that we I, I guess we'll headline, and we'll get into some more detail with our guest in just a couple of seconds, a woman or girl is killed every 2.5 days on average in Canada. That's the st- stat from last year. Joining us to talk about this is uh, uh, Crystal Giesbrek, who is the director of Of Research and Communication, the Provincial Association of Transition Houses and Services of Saskatchewan. Uh, Crystal, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show today.
3: Thank you. Good morning.
0: We've talked about some of these statistics and some of these very troubling statistics anecdotally as some of these incidents come and go in in our daily newscasts. Uh, I I think it was very important for an organization like this to actually gather this data and to try to make some determinations.
3: Yes. um And thank you for for highlighting this. As you said in your introduction, the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability was established last year um, on December, or just over a year ago on December 6th, in a response to the call from the UN. And this is important to establish a visible focus on femicide in Canada because if we don't document the femicides as they occur and monitor the response then we're not able to look at the rates and the statistics and work toward prevention.
0: There's a very important stat here and a very important difference uh, when we talk about homicides. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just do this anecdotally, and maybe you can uh, put some detail to this. Uh, traditionally, and, and if we look at statistics over the last number of years, men that are, are murdered, more often than not, are, are murdered by somebody they don't know. Women, on the other hand, more often than not, are murdered by men that they do know.
3: That's right. And this is consistent with the situation worldwide. The home is the most dangerous place for women. The majority of femicides are perpetrated by intimate partners. And also many of the killings that we've documented in this report are perpetrated by male family members. So it's most common that women are killed by someone they know whereas you said male homicide victims are killed by someone that they don't know so that's some of the purpose of the report is documenting when women are killed in relation to when women when men are killed and the gendered nature of the violence and the differences
0: I know that there may be a, an inclination to just categorize this as domestic violence, and, and, and that, that can be a very, very big umbrella when you look at situations like this. But there are some, some particulars about this, and, and I was just going over some of the details in this report, Crystal. And uh, One of the more troubling aspects is oftentimes these attacks occur when the, the, the woman, possibly in an abusive relationship or for one reason or another, uh, declares that they are leaving that relationship, and, and this is a, the result. This is the reaction they get from their male partner
3: yes and and that's something for everybody for the community and the general public to be aware of how dangerous it is to leave and why sometimes it can be such a long and difficult process for but you know and
0: and, and, and that's a, that's a word, that's a worthy point because when we talk about domestic violence uh I, invariably i'm sure you've heard this and i certainly do when i do programs about this i'm always going to get feedback from some people that say well why don't you just leave why don't you just Absolutely. get up and leave then? Uh, and, and as if it's easy to do, and it's not, and there could be serious implications. And this study, I think, bears that out.
3: That's right. There is serious implication. So we have to be sure that we have the resources in place to support survivors when they're ready to leave and to keep them safe when they do. So in the report, we document killings of women by intimate partners and other family members as well as other types of femicides. But when we're looking at those intimate femicides, coercive controlling behaviours, including jealousy, is a big motive and indicator for the killing as well as separation and estrangement so when the relationship is ending that's when we see the most risk. Uh,
0: interesting timing on the uh, release of this report I uh, just let you know Crystal and our listeners would hopefully be aware of this just yesterday on the program uh, we had some guests on here uh, who were victims of this I mean they they watched their mother their aunt actually is, uh, the two people fit two families living in the same house here in Hamilton uh, ex-husband ran into the house stabbed one of the daughters and uh, stabbed the, his ex-wife to death uh, right in front of them. That was 10 years ago, and they're still dealing with that. Of course, they're never going to get over it. It's never going to just go away. But and it, it, that, that was a living example of this, as we actually talked to these people and the impact that it's had on their family over the last little while. Now we get this report with these statistics that said this is happening uh, far more regularly than we'd like to think that it is.
3: That's it. When we see the numbers put together, we realize the significance of the problem in Canada and really the need to do something about this immediately. And sadly, we sometimes do have to see the statistics to, to really get, get action on the issue. But some of what the Canadian Femicide Observatory is doing is looking at criminal justice and court system responses, as well as, as media and and research, so that we can look at how those processes could be improved.
0: 148 women and girls killed in 133 incidents. This is just last year in 2018. Uh, 90% of those uh, accused in these crimes were men. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this this really defines the issue, doesn't it?
3: It does. And that's really the difference between femicide and other types of homicide and the violence that we see men experiencing, because there is a gender-based nature to this violence.
0: Well, and and let's clear something up here. And I want to maybe connect some dots here, if I could, Crystal. I you, I'm sure saw the commercial, the the 90 second commercial that uh, Gillette wanted to run on the Super Bowl, and it was it was about you know men and women and relationships. And there was a lot of negative pushback to that commercial, saying, "Well, you know what it's basically saying is that all men are evil and all men beat wives or murder wives," and which was not the message at all. And, and you know that death protest too much people that were taking that attitude uh, but what the I think the message was saying and I think what this report is indicating is that's not the case at all this is not an accusing finger saying all men are, are likely to do this and it's saying it does happen and we need to be aware of this and deal with this
3: absolutely You've one is one too perfectly. many. And and that's definitely it. If you're not part of the problem, and most men aren't, be part of the solution. Be informed about what's going on and think about how you can work to help in your daily life. It's definitely not about attacking men as a gender. It's about looking at what the reality of the situation is and what we need to put in place.
0: To go back to our conversation with our, our guest yesterday, Crystal, uh, that, that tragic event that happened 10 years ago. Uh, one of the extraneous factors in that was that uh, there was no room in the shelters. Uh, they applied and they just said, call every day, we'll see what we can do. Uh, sadly, they, you know, she died in her home but before they could actually do something about that. Uh, that was 10 years ago. I'd like to think that things have improved, but when I start looking at funding, uh, not just here in the Hamilton community, but right across the country for, uh, for those support services, uh, we still seem to be falling behind.
3: We are, definitely, because the need continues. Um, we're seeing in many communities, I think, a greater need, and that relates to housing and, and all of all of those things. And we haven't seen funding increase, um, very small increases or no increases over the last decade. So we have service providers that are doing the best they can to provide the services, but without always adequate funding and being able to um, have an adequate staff um, number of staff hours and all of that. So, it is very hard to encourage someone to get out of an intimate partner violence situation if there aren't services readily available in their community. So that's something we need to advocate for is funding to provide services no matter where you live in Canada, whether it's in an urban area or a rural area.
0: There's some interesting aspects to this too. Um, And and, and from your position uh, out west, maybe you can shed some light on this. Because I know that the funding invariably is done on a on a per capita basis, which means that obviously in rural areas where there's uh, the population is more sparse, uh, there's going to be less funding available. But there seems to be an indication in this report, Crystal, that, that, that the the possibility of these sorts of things happening may actually be greater in some of those areas, uh, maybe because of access to weapons, any number of different things like that, but those support services may not be there for those people in those areas, not just in Saskatchewan, but, I mean, rural areas right across the country.
3: Yes, yeah, in, in the report that femicides that were documented in the last year, 34% of the victims lived in rural areas. So we know that that's a risk factor for femicide and all of those issues related to getting out, getting housing, getting transportation. So the service that's provided in a rural community might be different than what's provided in the city, but we need to look at creative ways and making sure that that's available. And a lot of that just comes down to funding.
0: Let's talk about the, uh, the impact it has on different uh, ethnicities here. And, and I want to go right to uh, the, the statistic here about Indigenous women. Uh, we've heard some horrific stories, of course, in Manitoba. And then, of course, there was the Pickford situation years ago out on the West Coast. Uh, but these numbers are, are frightening. Uh, the Indigenous women represent about 5% of the population across this country, as you know, Crystal. But they make up 36% of the women and girls that were killed by violence. An inordinate number there. And, and we've seen evidence of that anecdotally. We've got a problem here.
3: Absolutely, and that's not just 2018. That is an ongoing, consistent problem with the high rates of violence against Indigenous women and girls. And this has been happening for a long time, and I'm sure you're aware of all the challenges documenting missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And sometimes we, and you can see in this report as well, we have some situations where we believe the victims to be Indigenous, but we don't have all of the information to say that for sure. So that mum- that number may be um, even a bit higher than, than what it is. So there's there's so many reasons, and, and some of that does come down to, to living in rural areas and the intersection of other risk factors as well. But um, we have a lot of problems in, in this country, and we definitely need to look at doing more research figuring out what the what the issues are but then looking quickly at at solutions for prevention of the violence against indigenous women and girls.
0: So where do we go with this? I mean there's a, a body of information here now and as you mentioned Crystal this has been out there for some time but but now it's 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 been gathered together there's a report here bingo that you can put this on the desk of, of members of parliament in Ottawa and legislative members right across the country. Uh, Where do you want to see them go with this? I mean, the federal government's going to come back and say, well, look, we've already established a panel and and a committee to look into this, and that was like four years ago, and there's a great deal of concern about whether they've actually accomplished anything at all. Uh, But you'd like to see not just some, some response to this, but some action about this.
3: Yeah, that's right, and that's why it was so important to do the report so that all of this information is here in one place, and the observatory will be continuing to monitor cases throughout this year as well as looking back at previous years so the work is ongoing but i think having the report and having all of this information together it allows not just the canadian femicide observatory but other advocates and and others across the country to be able to speak clearly to what the issues are and advocate to their elected officials um to see some change and this also gives us direction in terms of research priorities as well as areas that stand out the most in terms of prevention and where we need to really look at providing some services and in doing some additional work.
0: What do we need to be more proactive on this? Sadly we've been far too reactive on this responding after the events and and obviously we want to try to do something to, to, to lower these numbers.
3: Yeah, I think, I think that there's a few pieces. And one is really to understand the gender-based motives and looking at those indicators in the report because the reasons that women and girls are killed is based on gender and there's different reasons and therefore the risks are different. When women are at risk because of misogyny, because of a gender-based motive from someone they don't know or when they're at risk in their home from loved ones, family members. It's different risks and therefore we need to put different things in place for prevention. Are we, so doing- we need we need to have services available and we need to be doing work specifically on these issues with specific communities as
0: well. Are we doing any better at, at dispelling some of the myths that have been out there for the longest time? Uh, some of them, some might might be cultural-based, but I mean, the, the the most basic one and the most maybe egregious one is, well, she probably had it coming. You know, she pushed this guy too far, and you've heard that as, a, as an excuse uh, far too often, and it's still out there.
3: Oh, yeah, it still is out there, you know, and we're getting we're getting better. You mentioned the Gillette commercial. We wouldn't have seen that even a few years ago, but People still tend to use some of that crime of passion language, right? Or and that's not what it is. Femicide is a planned killing. It's not that the victim had it coming. It's it's not that you know this was something to to be to be expected. Um, but still, sometimes there are those those attitudes. And I think if maybe people haven't experienced or seen or or had someone in their life experience um the violence or the misogyny or see some of these factors play out maybe it can be hard to believe or hard to understand so while we're getting there there's still some pretty stark reminders that we do have a long way to go in terms of of public education and and helping our you know fellow canadians fellow community members to understand the scope of this issue and that it really is all of our problem
0: what about law enforcement agencies? What role do they play? There's been some criticism of them in the past that they didn't take some of these uh, uh, concerns seriously. They didn't take reports seriously. Uh, and, and you know, we talked about the, the incidents, of course, in Manitoba and British Columbia. Uh, and, and they, I think, justifiably got their knuckles wrapped for, for some of that. Now, I've, I've talked to, to the local police agencies about this, and uh, they, they've talked about educational programs uh, with police services uh, does there need to be a more coordinated effort? I mean because obviously that's going to be the first line of defense in, in a reactive but hopefully in a proactive manner too.
3: Yes absolutely and I think a co- coordinated effort between policing and also community agencies um, and others that are working with survivors of violence and providing some of that programming that can really help as as well in terms of prevention. I think as well, when we have research like this come out and it shows what the, what the high rates of violence for racialized women, Indigenous women are, that can help, I think, in terms of changing the perception and taking some of these things more seriously. We know about the problems with tracking um, the femicides of Indigenous women and girls and missing and murdered women across, across this country for so long. And we're, we're finally seeing some Some changes in regards to that. So, I think that the more work we do on this, the more it helps law enforcement as well to have the information and understand what those patterns and what those factors are.
0: Crystal, thank you so much for the time. Here's hoping that this report serves as a catalyst for a further conversation and uh, dialogue about this. Appreciate your time today and we'll stay in touch. Thank you very much. Take care. Crystal Giesbreck, of course, uh, Director of Research and Communication for the Provincial Association of Transition Houses and Services in Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about Huawei and, and not about the trial and not about the extradition possibilities and, and the back and forth that's going on. That's that's one element of it. And it's a very important element. We get that. But one of the other things that, that we need to have a discussion about here in this country is, uh, is about Huawei, the company itself. And, uh, and what's going to happen here, uh, because there's so many different people, including the United States government, that are pointing the finger at Huawei and say they are a security risk, that they share information with the Chinese government. Now, that's an accusation that's been out there for quite some time. The United States has certainly bought into it. Some of the other what we call five eyes, the uh, five different countries, including Canada, by the way, that share uh, intelligence information, Uh, suggest that uh, having Huawei included in the new uh, 5G network that's being developed uh, would be a bad thing, because that's going to give them access to information that they might be able to pass on to the Chinese government. Now, Again, speculative, but it's there. And I know that Canada has yet to make a decision on Huawei. That is, whether or not they're going to be part of the 5G network going forward. But it's not as simple as it might seem at first to simply say yes or no to this. Uh, and that's because of the uh, the stake I guess that Huawei already has here in Canada uh with uh, telecom I want to bring Greg O'Brien into the conversation editor and publisher of uh, cart.ca uh, Greg thank you so much for the time it's good to have you with us today thanks Bill good morning uh, yeah, listen right off the bat I'm just as I mentioned I was going to talk about this today I get I get tweets and emails on this right off the saying if if they're going to make this illegal how come we're selling the phones uh, and and how come they're already embedded in here uh, Huawei's already got a pretty strong presence in Canada don't they
4: Oh, they do. Um, it's uh, it, it makes up the bulk of Telus's existing network. Uh, to say nothing of the uh, of, of the five G, which, which will be next. Um, and Telus and Bell share a network, so there's quite a bit of it in Bell's network as well.
0: And they've been there for years. I mean, this is not something new that Huawei has been here and, and allowed to be here and developing. And, and, and Telus swears by these guys. And obviously, as you mentioned, so does Bell.
4: Oh yeah, they they make they make an excellent product. Like all of their products are really really good. Um, you know, they they run well. They're they're inexpensive to buy. Um, you know, for the for these big companies, um, and Huawei themselves have made quite an investment in Canada as well. I mean, they they've they've invested over five hundred million dollars. They've got research centers um, in Ottawa and in and in Waterloo. They work with universities, so it's 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 not a small
0: investment that Huawei's made in Canada. Well, they're investing an awful lot in R and D, and we know, but in, and actually working with some professors through grants and things of this nature. Uh, now again, let's get back to the security risk, Greg, right? because you've heard the rumors as well by some sources that say, "Yeah, that's all well and good, but you know that really means that they own all that intel then, and they own that research." And and I will say, "Yeah, well, that's one of the things they're doing." I mean, uh but the the accusation is out there that they're that they're in bed with the Chinese government. Where did this come from?
4: Well, I mean, it, it's China and it's it, it's the biggest Chinese technology uh, provider, you know, around the world. So. That's, you know, if you go into the executives, you'll see a lot of them who have worked for the Chinese government. So, th- th- you know, this is just the way that, that people think about uh, about China and, and for good reason. Um, you know, and, and the reason why people are really afraid of um, why 5G is different than 4G is just the way the network is going to be constructed uh, in the future where 5G transmitters. Are going to be much more plentiful and much closer to to people and businesses than four G transmitters are.
0: But but is there any proof that, that this is going on? That, uh, that that you know, what Huawei finds out gets passed on. Are are they doing this at all? Are they doing it willingly? Do we have any information, any intel on that?
4: There was an arrest in Poland, I think, two weeks ago um, of an, of a Huawei official, um, and uh, the company immediately disavowed him, as did the Chinese government. Um, but there's been no real proof, and if you look at the charges um, brought against Huawei by the U.S. government yesterday that were made public, anyway, um, it has to do with kind of bank fraud and stealing corporate secrets. Um, you know, being willing to work with a regime like Iran where they weren't supposed to—that sort of thing. There's, it's been no, you know, we're eavesdropping on your phone calls and, and figuring out what's you know what's going on with uh, with government files and things like that. N- none of that has been shown or proven
0: yet. Are you familiar with a, a, a firm called the Super Micro? No, I'm not. Uh, because there's a story last week. I don't know if you had a chance to see that it was in Bloomberg uh, Business Week, um, and and it, well, it, it raised an awful lot of eyebrows. I put it this way: uh, what the di- story did it cited six unnamed current and former national security officials. Uh, alleging that the computer components for a U.S. firm called Supermicro, uh, used by about 30 different companies, including Apple and Amazon, by the way, uh, had been subtly modified during manufacturing in a Chinese factory, which I guess, uh, in in their mind, was giving credence to this fact that look at the Chinese are are they're they're. They're, well, they used, the term they is here is modified, uh, but in other words, they're, they're rejigging these things, obviously, for their own benefit, uh, for the, to gather intelligence. Now, that's from Bloomberg News, which is a pretty credible source. Uh, both Apple and, and Amazon have denied that this happened, but there's another story that's out there.
4: Yeah, I mean, and, and, and it's fine to create technological boogeymen because, you know, none of us really have a great grasp on how it all works. But these, these products are all tested by governments, by the companies themselves. Um, and it, it's really hard to drive communications from an individual semiconductor all the way back to um, bad actors in China um, to gather up information. I mean, that that would be something that, you know, we've got some very, very smart technical people working the networks on our end um, who would be able to pick up on those signals quite quickly. Um, so I, I find that a little bit hard to believe myself. That said, though, um, China is a different place. You know, the government is in charge. And then everything, to, you know, that that we use on a technical daily basis is made in China.
0: Well, and yeah, that's that's the thing I find frustrating about this. Now, the, you know, they painted Huawei here as the bad guy, and I'm not trying to be naive about this. I'm I'm just suggesting that uh, this they're not a new player here. Uh, they've been around for the longest time, and and while these accusations are being tossed out here, I guess the other thing, if you want to be cynical about this, Greg, is uh, if in fact they are doing that, and if in fact they are gleaming information uh are we supposed to be naive enough to suggest that no one else is doing it either
4: <laughs> well that's the thing i mean I, I can't imagine you know ericsson or or nokia are doing anything like that cuz you know they're they're in the friendly you know western the, the, you know democratic countries um you know so but but yeah you know you wonder about foxconn you know which is apple's biggest uh, uh manufacturer in china you know what it, how secure is that how much does the the chinese government uh, you know have have a finger in that pie you know it's really hard to say
0: well, and, and again, where do you draw the line? Where, what's evil and what's, oops, a mistake? And, and we had the story, what was just a couple of days ago, right, about, about FaceTime, and that you can inadvertently eavesdrop on somebody else's conversation before you even actually connect through FaceTime, and Apple's just, oh, that's our bad, that's just a little glitch, don't worry, we'll try to fix that. Uh, if that was Huawei that was uh, you know, discovered to have done that, they're going to say, see, we told you, they're spying.
4: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. But Apple and- are the good
0: guys, so they can, they're okay, they get a pass.
4: But you know what? These technology companies are spying on all of us all the time. As soon as you turn on your phone, you're being tracked by these companies, mostly for advertising purposes, um, a little bit for making the products and services better. Um, you know, you are being tracked by these companies all the time, no matter what.
0: And uh, and that's a fact of life, that we seem to just have accepted and say, yeah, okay, but it's worth it for all the convenience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, but are, we, are we being, again, naive, uh, though, Greg, to suggest that, well, maybe... If if you know if Facebook can gather information and sell it, uh, are these people selling or sharing information with, well, we don't know who at this stage. It may be government officials, security officials, uh, Revenue Canada officials. We just don't know, do we?
4: No, I mean, it's, it's really hard to know. But it, it's also, like, if you look at the masses of, of data that, that are generated on a daily basis by Canadians it's, it, and, and all around the world... It's hard to track all of that, and it's really it's impossible to track all of that. There's just too much data, just the sheer number of phone calls and texts and, and data points that go back and forth. You know, as, as you're communicating with websites and apps, you know nobody's really tracking all of that uh, on an individual basis. And on a bulk basis to try and identify trends, yes. And the companies, whether they're on this side of the ocean or the other side of the ocean, they're all trying to enrich themselves as best they can um, by tracking that data. You know, that's, that's, a, that's, that's the risk that we take by, by living a modern life. Um, and, it's a, you know, it's a trade-off that we all find in convenience and, uh, you know, the, the wonderfulness that's, uh, that's really in our smartphones and, and other devices.
0: But I, I think we probably try to, you know, dull our, our concerns about this uh, by, by rationalizing it and trying to, you know, well, look at you know, it only happens every now and then. And besides, you know, should we be concerned about Huawei when we realize that even if, if the, the software is impenetrable, Ah, uh, there's still people that are going to hack it or try to hack it anyway. So that access could still be gained by people that have those that that mindset.
4: It, it, it's the suspension of disbelief that we all yeah. do, right? We all, we all, we all know a bad accident could happen if we drive on the highway in a snowstorm, but we still do it. Um, you know, thinking it's not going to happen to us or my driving's a little bit better or you know whatever might whatever might happen. So we're all thinking that you know it's uh, it's not going to happen to us. We're going to be fine in the end. And for most of us, you know, we will be um you know but for Huawei it it, it it's it's not going to turn out that great for them i don't think i think the writing's pretty much on the wall um, that uh, that their their technology won't be allowed to be deployed in the five G networks in Canada.
0: Okay, but here's here's I'm going to give you the other side of the coin. I know you've heard this, but just put this on the table for the sake of our listeners too. So let's let's e- even if we wanted to take the accusations against Huawei at face value, uh, there's one line of thought that I've read on a, d- a couple of different occasions now from different sources that said, wait just a second here. That that the, most of the time these accusations about about intelligence sharing etc., are coming from the U S government. Uh, and they're suggesting that is you know, and again, let's let's put you know the 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 microscope on them for a second that the possible motivation for that might be because they're trying to protect their own self interest when it comes to tech development. In other words, if they can knock Huawei on their, to their knees, then that leaves American tech companies as the ones who can fill that void for the the, for the 5G network.
4: Well, true. I mean, you know, one of the other big suppliers is Qualcomm, which is yeah. a U.S. company. So, so yeah, that that is definitely a part of it as well. Um, you know. You, I don't have to explain the political climate in the United States to people where, uh, you know, it's sort of America first. So, so, yeah, there is a big portion of that self-interest um, in the United States government and in other governments to, to kind of push Huawei aside um, in favor of other companies. Now, we don't have, um, you know, big domestic firms like that in Canada. We used to with, with BlackBerry, but it's much smaller now. Um, but, you know, that, that is a big, big part of it
0: and and that's that's the nature of the business we get that and you know to suggest that the united states wouldn't dip to something like that i think again is is a little ludicrous of course they would to to protect self interest and and we talk about lobbyists all the time and you know especially when it comes to the tech world uh that that if they want to get their way obviously they're going to do that through government and and through lobbying the government and and we don't know but you can assume that, uh, that if there's a close relationship between the Chinese government and Huawei, there certainly is between the American government and Qualcomm and, and, and other providers in situations like that. And you've, you've got to wonder what their long-term goals are.
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, those tech companies are now the, one of the most uh, effective lobbyists in, uh, in Washington, whether it's Qualcomm or Google or you name it. Uh, you know, the, these companies are definitely, you know, when they talk about protecting their self-interest and competing, they're not only competing in the marketplace, they're also competing in the government regulatory space as well. I mean, even their lawyers and lobbyists are compensated with bonuses on regulatory wins and and changes to the law.
0: What's going to happen with this long-term? As you mentioned, Huawei's getting beat up on on an international stage right now for a variety of reasons. But Canada and the U.K. are seemingly still sitting on the fence on this. They're obviously cognizant of the feedback they're getting from their Five Eyes partners about this, about don't let Huawei in there. But as you mentioned, Greg, Huawei is already deeply embedded into the Canadian market now. And uh, to suggest that, okay, you can keep doing what you're doing, but you're not going to be part of 5G, seems to be a bit of a double standard.
4: Yeah, it it is. But it's also, like I said earlier, the way in which the two different technologies work. Like 4G works uh, and 3G before that works, you know, we see these big cell towers on the side of the highway. And that covers like a a square kilometer, basically, of, uh, you know, of, of, of coverage. Um, but 5G, there will be transmitters on light poles and street furniture and all over the place. So you're, that's what makes it a little bit scarier, that the technology is much, much deeply and more deeply embedded into, um, you know, into the buildings, into society in, in, uh, in Canada. So that's what's really scaring people, is that it would, if, if there is such a way to, uh, to, you know, for uh, espionage, these close transmitters are going to make it much, much more easier.
0: Well, and so for people that are thinking, well, Canada is is vacillating here because they're getting pressure from Huawei. It seems to me, Greg, that the pressure on the Canadian government right now, not so much coming from Huawei, but it's coming from Telus and Bell to say, "What, well, hey guys, you know, you got to understand that we we do business with these people."
4: Well, yeah, and, and Telus and Bell, I, I, you know, they probably see the writing on the wall as well that five G is not going to be for uh, for Huawei in Canada. You know, and, and I'm not saying that that's that's been decided. It it hasn't. Um, But what Telus and Bell want to do is make sure that they don't have to tear out all the existing Huawei gear um, that they're already using with 4G and 3G, because that's that's a $2 billion bill, at least, is what I've heard. Uh,
0: This is fascinating. This is spy versus spy, government versus government, and uh, tech company versus tech company. I don't know how this is going to end up. Uh, So obviously, we'll be staying in touch, Greg, and seeing what the latest developments are. Thanks for this today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to help. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Greg O'Brien, of course, editor and publisher of cart.ca. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an episode and make sure that you rate and review.
1: For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does.